If you are a youngin, just stay where you are for a second. I'm not going to release you just yet because I want to do one thing first. So uh, what's happening all over Yellowstone County, some have already begun, but uh, Billings and uh, Lockwood, I believe, uh, start here in a moment. Um, it is that time where we send the kids back to the clink. And so what I'd like to do is pray for them as they fix to go back. And also, I'd like to pray for all of those that are going to uh, mind the clink with our kids in it. So if you are about to go back to, to class, would you please stand up? Come on. I know, I know some kids right now that are not standing up. That you're about to go back in class. We want to pray for you. We want to show you love, the, the love of your family. So um, if you are... Uh, in any way affiliated with education, with, with teaching, if you are a bus, uh, if you're a, a teacher, if you're a bus aide, if you are, um, if you serve them lunch, if you do any, like if you're a janitor, if you're involved with schools as well. So kids and adults, stand up so we can pray for all of you right now. So, and I see, I see them. I see them, yep, You're, they are standing in the Spirit, those two right there, that uh, we're going to pray for them right now. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you come and wrap your arms around each of those that are standing right now? I pray for the journey that they're about to take, and I pray that they would meet you on that journey. Holy Spirit, would you protect our kids? Father, would you go before them into the classroom? Would you connect them to people that will, that will teach them and train them? Father, will you, would you also meet them in conflict? I pray that they would know your love. I pray that they would know your presence. And I pray, Father, that, that their experience in school would teach them more about you and your love. But Father, also, would you make our kids ambassadors for your kingdom? So, Father, would you give them the heart of the evangelist? Would you make them as powerful of, as all of those that we read about in Scripture, that they would carry your message into these places? And I pray that, that it would be forever changed because of the vineyard kids that step into those schools. So, Father, would you give them the heart of a warrior? Would you give them your compassion? Would you help them to see beyond the surface of those that they deal with? And Father, for those adults that will train and teach and shepherd and protect our kids, I pray a blessing over them. I pray, Father, that you would settle all of the stress. I pray that you would fill their heart with joy. And I pray that they would be a refuge to encounter you. So Father, would you go into every building that these folks represent would you blow through every building in the name of Jesus? Would your Holy Spirit chase out anything that is not of you? I pray that these classrooms would be a place of peace and rest and victory, and we pray that it would bring you glory. So, Father, would you bless the school year in the name of Jesus? Amen. Youngins, you're free to get up out of here. Head on back. Your teachers are waiting for you. And I'll tell you this, I am excited about one thing. I've been, I've been uh, banging the drum for our kids' ministry for a while and I am excited for what's coming. September 17th is my first opportunity to teach Sunday school. And I'm not sure who's going to preach that day. 
We'll figure that out later, but I'm looking forward to joining our kids' ministry and being a part of that. And so I'm going to just offer this one more time. If you want to come with me, we've got this meeting, uh, and we've got, we're, we're going to uh, serve lunch, but we've got a meeting coming up that's going to equip us. This is not nearly as scary as you think that it is, and it's actually pretty awesome when you find yourself at the pointy end of the spear. When you find yourself in that place where, where we are actually getting to fight real fights, where we're training kids in all this stuff, two things happen. Number one, kids get to know us, which is just cool because they are the coolest uh, part of our church. I'm not saying anything about you all, but they really are. Um, but then also, we get to know God so much, so, in so much more depth and, and intimacy. So I'm going to extend this invitation to you, especially if, you're, if you heard me say it before and your response was, oh, hell no. I would say that that's a good indication that maybe the Lord is speaking to you that you should join me in kids' ministry. So if that's you, uh, we got that meeting where it's going to happen downstairs right after uh, service. But we need to kick that thing off so we can actually get to the meeting. So, uh, oh, by the way, my name's Adam. I'm a pastor here if we haven't had a chance to meet. Um, we are in the second week, or our second to last week of our Summer of Heroes uh, season. This is crazy to me that we are already here, that summer is already that just, we're just that close to being out of our grasp. But we're in the second to last week. Um, we're using Hebrews 11. We've used Hebrews 11 all summer as a vehicle to teach us about faith as we examine people from our spiritual lineage. And I'm really enjoying that, thinking about these people as our spiritual lineage. These are family members of ours that the writer of Hebrews is highlighting due to their faith. Now, one outcome that we've reached early on is identifying faith as a product of participation, a product of participation with God and his plan of reconciliation with the world. We see from each of these stories that faith is not produced through human talent, through human effort or achievement, but it's a product of partnering with God as he invites us to participate in his will. Now, the daunting part is, is coming to realize what it means to participate with God. But the encouraging part is that this has been daunting for everyone throughout history. So we're in good company. Today we have the last section of the descriptions that inform us about how our spiritual ancestors grew in and operated in faith. We're beginning Hebrews 11, verse 35. Women received their loved ones back from death, but others were tortured refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised them. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. This passage of Hebrews 11 not only does it demonstrate how weak Hollywood is in terms of creating stories, because that's some pretty gnarly stuff, 
But this is a really interesting intermingling of different periods of history. This isn't a, a, a linear chronology, but a, a presentation of events that people um, that, that, that are, were moving back and forth through the Old Testament period, but also were, were in periods of the silent years or that, that intertestamental period, um, the, the historical time that lies between the Old and the New Testament. And the, writers, uh, the writer of Hebrews is going back and forth, uh, just moving through the, these, these folks. The one key to all of this is that, that all of these people lived and died before Jesus came. First and second Kings show us how Elijah and Elisha placed their faith in God and saw children raised from the dead. In second Chronicles, uh, we, we see there that how the prophet Zechariah was stoned to death by his own people because he told them the truth about the consequences of what they were doing. Jewish tradition also tells us that the same thing happened to the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, this is a pretty popular thing to have happen to prophets that telling people things that they don't want to hear, presenting them with the consequences of their own action. Jeremiah, as well, is stoned by his own community in Egypt for daring to do what God told him to do. Another Jewish tradition that's referenced by this passage, the writer says, some were, were sawed in half. King Hezekiah was the 13th king of Judah, and he was one of, honestly, he was really one of the last good and faithful kings. He was a king that lived in righteousness with God. He, he lived with right relationship with God. And he brought reforms to, to Judah that, that led to a renewed energy and a renewed worship of God. The prophet Isaiah served Judah and King Hezekiah. But also, after Hezekiah's death, he served Manasseh, who came to the throne next. And Manasseh was not a good dude. Manasseh was not interested in righteousness with God. He worshiped idols. And not only did he worship idols, he tried to compel Isaiah to do the same, but not just to do the same, to approve it, and then also sanction it for the nation of Israel. Basically, what he's asking Isaiah to do is say, hey, tell, the, 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 uh, or tell Judah, tell the people that God said it's okay. It's okay to worship whatever you want. Isaiah refused and was sentenced to being sawn asunder by a wooden saw. I feel like that is a word I'm probably going to take on um, because that just sounds he, sawn asunder. I don't think we use that word enough, asunder. I do not want to be asundered. That would be, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure how, I'm going to work on how to use that better because I know, you know, it's probably not accurate to say I don't want to be asundered. I don't know if I could say, like, I will asunder the hell out of you if you don't shut your trap. Is that, no, we can't say that? Okay. Anyway, he is sentenced to being sawn asunder. Before this, though, Isaiah is given a chance to renounce his faith in God. And they continue to do this while they are sawing him into with, did you hear, a wooden saw. That I can't even imagine what, like... I don't even want to think too much about that, but this is how the narrative is remembered. And whilst the saw cut into his flesh, Isaiah uttered no complaint and shed no tears, but he ceased not 
to commune with the Holy Spirit till the saw had cloven him to the middle of his body. That's Isaiah, hero of the faith. There's so much that can be said about this historical presentation. But to my mind, the first question that that I have to address is why are these spiritual ancestors of ours, these men and women that really lived, why are they willing to endure such torture, such hardship, and such conflict? We have walked through this summer looking at each of these heroes, and I look at this and what is in their head, why are they doing this? What makes them able to, to operate with such faith? The writer of Hebrews says a lot when, when, when the writer says that all of these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. It's interesting when your computer decides to update right in the middle of a sermon. So, um, okay. So we, we talked about being torn asunder, and, and, I, you know, and my, my uh, proclivity for using that in the future. You'll understand that now. Um, so the writer of Hebrews says a lot when, they, when the writer says that all of these people earned a good reputa- reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. All that they did was previous to seeing the full weight of God's promise come to fruition. Now, if you consider... The way that the church calendar is organized, we can see how different our experience is from them. So we have it uh, basically organized in a way to celebrate all the different eras of God's unfolding plan of reconciling with us. We see the Advent time, that, in- that anticipation that we're getting closer to, by the way, um, before we celebrate Christmas, when we go between Thanksgiving to Christmas and we celebrate that, that anticipation of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God with the birth of Jesus. That leads us to a time of celebrating his life and ministry in the new year. It includes the Epiphany, Ash Wednesday, Lent, all of that. Um, it also it includes then Holy Week with, uh, with Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Day, Easter. We then have Pentecost, the day that we celebrate the receipt of the Holy Spirit and really the birthing of the era of the church. All of that, the, the calendar is a reality for us because we live in a time that followed the fulfillment of the promises of Jesus. We live in a time of the fulfillment. This is one of them days. I am not sure if that's me or back there. All right. going to uh, I'm going to put this in my pocket just because I don't want a tail. <laughs> All right. So this is how, how things roll here at the vineyard. Um, if you're visiting with us today, this is uh, about the way that it goes. So, um, all right, so we've, we've got the church calendar, and why, why are we talking about that? Because we are in this era where we get to celebrate all of the promises all of the fulfillment of the promises that God offers us. These folks didn't have that opportunity. They lived by faith 
knowing that something would occur. Just to know how much we're, the, the clock keeps going out too. So there is something awesome happening here today. This means we're about to have a good day. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, a starting place though for our answer is this. The answer to that question of why or how could they do this. Each of these people knew that the promise of salvation says more about God than it does about us. Our salvation is more about God than it is about us. Your salvation is more about God than it is about you. If salvation could be earned, if it could be a product of our own work, if it could be achieved, a product of progress, then salvation would be about us. It would be about how we were able to attain it. But it isn't. Salvation is an outcome of having faith that Jesus is who the scriptures say that he is and that he is the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice. Salvation is an outcome of faith, and we know that that faith is a product of participation. So their faith, these Hebrews, uh, the, the Hebrews heroes in Hebrews 11, their faith is manifest in their endurance and that they are enduring for a plan that is not their own. This endurance can seem superhuman, exceptional, outside of what is possible for an average pedestrian Christian like me. Maybe that's even a little bit uh, generous on some days, calling myself an average and pedestrian Christian. But if salvation is more about God than it is about us, by extension, these stories that we just went through all summer long are more about God than they are about the heroes of the faith. The last of the heroes of the faith that we're going to examine provides us an example of, of us encountering the living God, having faith build as, he, as, as this hero experiences the reality of relationship with God, but also the journey of submission that God invites us uh, into as he invites us into his will over our own will. And then the difficulty of this journey comes out when the road gets rough. We're going to see a pretty tough road today, and we're going to see the power of the outside world seemingly too big to overcome. You ever experienced that? You ever had the power of the outside world seem too big to overcome? Elijah serves as a reminder that the heroism celebrated in Hebrews chapter 11 is not exceptional, but it's available to you and I if we are willing to let the story be about God rather than the story be about us. So Elijah was a prophet. He served the, the kingdom of Israel in, the, in about nine centuries before Jesus broke into the historical timeline. This is after the nation of Israel had split, uh, a few centuries before the final defeat and the exile of Judah and, and Israel. Elijah had a relationship with God that was born out of the same real encounters and experiences that were available to us today. This relationship was nurtured by God's faithfulness to Elijah 
and, and Elijah's willingness to participate in God's plan rather than in his own plan. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets of all time when you think about faith and when you think about operating in, in the signs and wonders of the power of the Holy Spirit. The miracles that he performed in the service of God are, are unparalleled by any other prophet. He's also one of the two prophets that appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in the story that we can see in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and, and Luke chapter 9. Also, like Enoch, he's taken to heaven, and together with Enoch, he is one of two humans that never experience physical death. Now, living in Israel, his ministry as a prophet uh, was really to oppose the worship, the, the idolatry, the worship of, of Baal in, in Israel, and all of the sins and injustices that, that the idolatry brought, but especially the sin and the idolatry of King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, and King Azahiah. Oh, I almost had it. I moved too fast when I had these letters you know, broken out uh, for me. I moved too fast on a trip. Ahaziah, Ahaziah, Ahaziah. If I say it three times, it is in my head. Ahaziah. Oh, man, what a day. Speaking the words that God gave him to speak, Elijah got himself into trouble. These folks did not like Elijah and his message. The stuff that he said would happen always happened as well, which actually made them hate him even more. He, this also, think about that. Um, everything that you say coming to, to, to fruition, everything that you, that you say will happen, actually happening, this is not a popular party trick when the people around you have created things other than God to be the center of their life. So Elijah is not a, a welcome member of this party. Elijah's prophecies and prayers were all, they were fulfilled. And often they were accompanied by the power of God manifested in miraculous events. Because Elijah knew that these miracles were from God, rather than anything that he could manifest on his own, every time God's power and authority was, was displayed, Elijah had an opportunity for his faith to grow. He knew where this stuff was coming from. But the journey of faith is long, and even with all of that, Elijah needed reminders of, of this power and authority, but he also needed reminders of God's personal love for him as an individual that matters to God. Now, after a particularly epic display of power and authority on Mount Carmel that, that's found in 1 Kings chapter 18, um, also that, that's just not, don't have the time to get into it today, but this is my favorite story in the Old Testament. If you've never read this, you have to read this. It is the most amazing thing ever, uh, watching Elijah taunt the, the uh, anyway, I can't go down that road because it's so awesome. Elijah experiences a spiritual high from this, from this thing that happens on Mount Carmel uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18. He, is, he, he just saw the power of God unfold in front of him in a way that just blew his mind, but also just increased his faith. He is, he is riding high. And then after that, a spiritual low that, lead, that leaves him begging for God to kill him. Probably the, the, the biggest swing of emotion that's captured in Scripture. 
uh, 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8 shows us what, what happened. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent, his message, sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me. If this, by this time tomorrow, I have not killed you just as you killed them. It's not very nice. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Anybody else ever pray that prayer? I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than any of my ancestors who have already died. Elijah's pushed to his limit. The outside forces are overshadowing the power of God. Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. While he was sleeping, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, for the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, took the food, or I'm sorry, he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel. 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Now, one could argue that Elijah should have known better. That Elijah had seen enough of God that he ought not be worried about threats from this earthly queen. We could argue this should have just rolled right off his back. Or, we could say that he should be able to stand up and take it like, like Isaiah did. Because dying for the Lord is the ultimate privilege. Now, while all that stuff might be true, Elijah is like us. Or at least, he's like me. And fear overtook his faith. But remember the premise of what we're talking about here today. These stories are more about God than they are about us. That means that this story is more about God than it is about Elijah. Did you notice how God responds to the fear of Elijah? Elijah says to God the Father. To God our Father. I'm done. I've had enough. Kill me now. Our father listens, and then he lets his child take a nap. Then after the nap, our father gives him a snack. Out in the wilderness, there's bread baking and a jar of water. And then Elijah gets another nap and another snack, and the food sustains him for a 40-day journey to Mount Sinai. 
Think of the power and authority of God that is manifest in this story. His child is terrified. Elijah acted out of fear rather than faith and is hiding in the desert, begging God to kill him and to save him from the people that he's afraid of. Now, what we could expect if we were authoring this story, or at least if I was authoring this story, in, in, in this place of, of sometimes judgment that I, that I would uh, look through, the, or a, judge, a lens of judgment that I might look through into somebody else's story, what we could expect is that this hero of the faith is acting like a pansy uh, without faith, and we, we ought to deal with him. This guy needs to be dealt with. Surely, we can't, we can't use him as an example of heroism. We can't, we can't use him as, as an example of right relationship with God when he tucked tail and ran, and then he whined to God to kill him like an Old Testament drama llama. This cannot be a hero of the faith. But that's making the story about Elijah, and it's also making the story about, about me. Because often the, the problems that I see in other people are my own problems. Because I see them doing the thing that I would do or the thing that I've done. This story is about God, not Elijah. Your story and my story also is more about God than it is about you and me. Realizing that truth allows us to access the reality of relationship as we step out of self-centered life. God sees fear in Elijah, and he meets him in that place. He gives him rest. He gives him sustainment. And perhaps the most telling action as it relates to the plan of God, he relaunches Elijah on a mission when we might expect Elijah to be disqualified. This story reveals the love of God not the failure of Elisha. Back to the story. Then he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your, your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came. 
and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazel to be the king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Now, just so this isn't a distraction for us, Elijah is not being replaced for punitive reasons. He's being replaced because the plan of God continues to unfold, and Elijah has another purpose. Effectively, he's worked himself out of a job and into a new job, uh, the next one that God has for him. So I mentioned that just to get rid of the distraction of the fact that, that, the God, that, that God just told Elijah to replace himself. Remember that this story is about God and who God is revealed to be by this narrative. Elijah was weak, scared, and wanted to quit. Anyone ever been weak, scared, and want to quit? He operated out of fear when he had access to the knowledge of God's power and authority. Anyone ever act out of fear when we had access to the knowledge of God's power and authority? On this mountain, playing out in front of Elijah, we see power. We see a great windstorm that tears rocks loose of the mountain. We see an earthquake that shakes the very ground and a fire that sweeps through the scene. Three displays of awesome power. But God was in the whisper that followed, asking Elijah, what are you doing here? This is a gentle voice. This is not an indictment meant to draw out shame. This is a proclamation of love. A gentle inquiry that, that invites Elijah to see that the power of God is manifest in his plan, and his plan demonstrates his character. Elijah's restoration to that plan is not about the character of Elijah. It's about the character of God. This is the God that invites us into relationship. This is the God that sees our fear. This is the God that sees our failure. This is the God that, seem, that sees us when we are overwhelmed and ready to give up. This is the God that offers us a place at his table and calls us his own child. Paul writes this to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. And we can share that suffering because Abba, Father, our dad is the main character of this story. Heroic faith is not a product of our ability to overcome to handle difficulty, or to de defeat villains that are born out of some freak lab accident. Heroic faith is a product 
of participation as a piece of the story that's about God. We invite the worship team to come back and our prayer ministry also. As we turn back to, to uh, worship, would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, there is so much that we have been told. So much that we have been uh, presented about our own place in the world. Father, there is so much about how we read scripture, how we, how we interact with each other, that's more about us being a main character in our own story. Father, we know that this story is about you. And Father, we know with this story being about you, we have all we need. And so would you come against the lie from the pit of hell that there is something lacking? I pray that, that we would see you come against the lie that we are not enough. I pray that we would see you come against the lie that our progress or our achievement or our works will equal your love. And so, Father, as you chase that lie in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would replace it with the truth. That we are bought, we are purchased at a price. That you chose us as your children. We participate with you. And you invite us into that place, not because of what we've done, not because of what we can do, but because you love. As we finish and worship together, I'm gonna to invite you to come up to, to receive prayer. If you would like to, to feel the love of the Father, if you want prayer for anything, I'd invite you up. I would even say this, if you have never come up for prayer, come up for prayer and feel the power of the love of God come around you as we pray for you. This is where we get to stand before the Lord and hear that gentle voice. The gentle voice that has all the power and all the authority. In Jesus' name.